If you would uh, turn with me to Colossians 3, that's where we'll be this morning. We are drawing toward, I would say, the close of the book, but there's probably several more sermons before we actually get to the end of the book. But we are going to be in the back half this morning, picking up where I last left off after ending Colossians 2. Um, And if you'll remember, as you turn there, we had um, really sort of gotten to Paul's um, polemical part of the book, his reputation of false teaching specifically, having um, given the Colossians this clear, lofty, joyful instruction through the first chapter and a half on the person and the work of Christ, both generally and, and universally, sovereignly over all of the universe and personally, corporately for the church in in every individual heart of the saint and having dealt with the root of false teaching which is a a sort of intimidation or an enticement away from Christ is all sufficient, from Christ is all that we need. Christ is all precious, all wisdom. Having dealt with that root um, of the false teaching that they're struggling with directly, Paul now turns to a new section of the letter this morning, Um, a new sort of discourse in his letter to the Colossians, which is a, a sort of teaching on the new spiritual life in Christ. New life in Christ. He reminded us, Paul did in in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, that we had been raised with Christ. That we are now made alive in Christ. And Paul presents this new discourse on living that life. Living that new life in Christ. Living out in practical holiness what they have received in Christ. And the shift in discourse comes with its own sort of structure within the overall structure of the letter. It comes with an introduction of the new life in Christ in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. You have the body of the discourse in verses 5 through 11. It contrasts the old and the new ways of living. The, the old man and the new man in Christ. Um, in verses 12 through 18, we have guidelines and marks of, of Christian holiness, of Christian love. Um, And instructions about Christian relationships for husband and wife, parents and children, masters and servants through verses 18 to the end of the chapter. And I want to look today specifically at Paul's introduction to this new section in verses one through four. Um, I have to admit, anytime I come to a text like this, Colossians three, one through four, I'm a little daunted, intimidated at the prospect of, of teaching through it, preaching through it, because I don't know if I'll be able to give a text like this justice. Um, I feel as if I've already preached through it in, in some sense. The, the first nine or ten sermons that I've preached in Colossians, I think I've referenced this passage every single time. And that's really because this passage here today is the essence of all that Paul gives us in Colossians. Of all that Paul teaches the Colossian saints. While, while verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, um, where it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That may be the hinge statement. But verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 is is the peak of Colossians. It's sort of the highest point that he gets to in his indicatives, the things that he's teaching the Colossians. And that's because this passage is central to everything Paul has said in his letter, everything he's going to say. There are two more fundamental imperatives or commands that Paul gives here in this text concerning the Christian life. And he grounds these in four incredible truths about the Christian in relation to Christ. And in fact, your relationship, your relation to Christ, your position in Christ as a believer is the essence of this introduction. You can't live the Christian life and not be in Christ. You must be in Christ to live out Christian holiness. Paul is drawing out truly what it means to be in union with Christ. 
what it means for all of life. There's no greater or more pressing subject for us to think on in this life as Christians than what it means to be in union with Christ. What it means to be in Christ. To be with Christ. And having shown us who Christ is and what He has done, what He has done for us and in us, how He is better and more sufficient than any other system or so-called Savior or mediator telling us that we have been raised with Christ. Paul is laboring here in this text to introduce us and welcome us to our new life. And seeing how this text is itself an introduction of sorts, I don't need one of uh, my 15-minute introductions to give you this text today. So we're just going to read it, um, and then we're going to pray and ask the Lord for help, and we'll dig in. I'm, I'm going to start actually back in verse 11 of chapter 2 for context. I'm going to read through um, verse 4 of chapter 3. It says, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, I thank you for this time together, Lord. I thank you for the worship of your son through your through praise, God, through songs, Lord, I thank you for your word given to us by which we may know you, by which we may obey you and believe you, by which you may worship you now. God, I pray that you would um, be with me, have mercy on me, God, um, to preach in a way that is bold and clear and accurate and joyful, Lord, that exalts the risen Christ, Lord, and, and draws us together in our hearts to set him apart as holy, to worship him for who he is, to set our minds on the things above where he is. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So to this point in Paul's letter to the Colossians, I've said, Paul has labored to show the believers in Colossae two great truths. 
Two great truths in the book of Colossians, which will refute any false teaching they hear and which will guard their minds and their hearts against any temptation or insecurity or fear that they may experience while living out the Christian life. Two truths which will spur them on more and more to greater fruitfulness, to greater holiness and obedience as Christians. And the first truth of which Paul reminds them again and again in Colossians is simply who Christ is. Who Christ is in all of his truthfulness and glory and sufficiency and authority. Christ is the truth that is the subject of the word of the truth, the gospel of which they heard in chapter one, verses five and six. Christ is the inheritance of the saints in light, which the father has qualified them to receive. In chapter one, verse 12, Christ is the king and the beloved son of the father into whose kingdom they have been transferred out of the kingdom of satanic darkness Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, creator of all things, visible and invisible. Christ is the purpose or the reason for the existence of all things. For all things are created by him, through him and to him or for him. Christ is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one, the fullness of God in human flesh. It says in verses 18 and 19 of chapter one. Christ is the reconciler of all things through his death on the cross. In verse 20, Christ is the great minister of the church from whose Paul's ministry is received for them. Paul's first Paul first shows the Colossians who Jesus Christ is so that they would know that there is no claim to truth or authority or knowledge or glory or sufficiency or holiness or anything else outside of Christ that can hold a candle to the radiant glory of the son of God. That's his purpose there. And the second truth of which Paul reminds the Colossians over and over again in the letter to the Colossians is that they have received this Christ. Not just received him by way of accepting him or uh, accepting his message, endorsing or approving of him. They truly have received him. The great mystery, Paul says, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to these saints is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in them. This all-sufficient, true, kingly, divine Son of God is theirs to possess by faith. And what happens to Christ happens to them. God is in them through Christ to save them and transform them. And they are in Christ. They are in Christ. They are unified with Christ by faith. And what now happens to Christ happens to them. Christ has been Christ has died on the cross. And so we have died to our flesh and sin and penalty to the law. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we have been raised. We have all been raised from our spiritual death into new life. And we will be raised bodily just as Christ was raised bodily from the dead. Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God. And so these Colossian saints are now, as Ephesians 1 tells us, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is kept, he's treasured, he's loved by the Father, and so now are the saints. What happens to Christ, where Christ goes, is where the saints go. What happens to the saints? And not only that, but for those who are in Christ, all that Christ is, not just Christ, but all that he has is theirs to possess by faith. In Christ are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, all the saints have access to these riches. All wisdom and knowledge. They don't need another source of revelation about spiritual things, another teacher, 
another system of thought or belief to tell them about heavenly things or about themselves or about anything in the world or about salvation. They have all wisdom and knowledge readily available to them in Christ. In the word of Christ, in Christ is the fullness of God and they have been filled in him. Verse 10 of chapter two says, who is the head of all rule and authority, all grace, all knowledge, all wisdom, all purity and holiness, everything that is needed to know God and to obey God and to obtain the glory of God is theirs already in Christ. That's the point. And as Paul intends here in his letter to think on these two truths, to understand who Christ is and to understand that they are in Christ, what they have in Christ will make any offer of something else, something extra, repulsive to them. They are in Christ in all of his richness and fullness and the offer of spirituality or wisdom or knowledge or experiences or holy living outside of Christ is a lie. It's, it's a false offer to turn from what they possess already in Christ to what the Colossian heretics offer outside of Christ would be like trading a Ferrari for a Ford. Exchanging a a mansion on the hilltop for a cardboard box down by the river. That's the that's the dynamic here. What what Paul has labored to show the Colossians so far in this letter is simply who Christ is and who they are in Christ. Their identity to identify Jesus Christ is to show them their new identity, which is in Christ. There's there's a lot said about identity in our culture today. That's kind of the mood that's that's sweeping um, Our our present age, that your identity is something that belongs wholly to you, that you get to choose it. You get to determine your identity. You get to alter it and change it according to your according to your own will and then demand others abide by that new identity. As if your change in identity determines the reality around you. It's obviously foolishness, right? We we understand that your gender identity, as they call it today, does not determine reality. But but Paul is telling the Colossians the opposite here. There is a new reality about you. You are a new creation and therefore your identity has changed. Everything that is fundamental to, to you, everything that you know about yourself has changed. You are no longer darkness. You are light. You are no longer foolish and blind and dead. You have been made wise and able to see and made alive in Christ. Your personal pronouns, if you will, Paul tells the Colossians, are simply in Christ and with Christ. In Christ and with Christ. Paul uses those phrases repeatedly throughout his letter to show the Colossians who they are in relation to Christ. So now as Paul opens this third chapter here in verses 1 through 4, what he is doing is introducing to us this new identity. Our new life in Christ. And that will necessarily entail a new lifestyle, new Actions, But before Paul gets to those ethical imperatives, he gives us the new worldview, the new mind and heart of someone that is in Christ who has been regenerated by the spirit through the word of Christ. And firstly, we see here that the one in Christ has a new orientation. Paul begins with the reminder of identity here in chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ. And the conjunction if there, it's a it's a conditional in the Greek, but it's not conditional in the sense that we would use it in the English. This is one of those points where the English kind of fails to accurately convey what the Bible is saying in its original languages. What Paul is about to command the Colossians to do is commissioned on what he is telling them here. 
who he is telling them that they are. That is raised with Christ. So the conditional statement is not whether they have been raised with Christ, but rather since or because they have been raised with Christ. They are to do what he is going to tell them to do. Paul is reminding the Colossians that they have been raised with Christ. He told them this in in Colossians 2. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says again in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Excuse me. Though you were dead, Christian says here, uncircumcised in heart, unholy in your desires and actions, unable to understand the spiritual truths, unable to see spiritual realities, to love the God who is spirit. Though you were dead in your sin, alive to the sinful world, dead to God, now you are dead to the world. Buried with Christ in baptism and alive to God. Raised with Him through faith. As Ephesians 2 says, we quote this over and over again because it is so fundamental to our experience as Christians. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul is describing here at the beginning of Colossians 3. And notice it's not simply raised. We're not simply made alive. But we're raised with Christ. Did you hear how many times Paul uses a variation of that same clause in Ephesians? We are made alive together with Christ. Raised up with Christ. Him, He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Also that God might show His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. The phrase itself in Colossians 3.1, for being raised with Christ, describing our resurrection. The Greek word is, is sinigiro. It's co-resurrected. Christ is not also raised. Christ is not in addition to the resurrection. Christ is not the means of resurrection. Christ is the resurrection and the life. He told us as much in the Gospel of John. There's no spiritual life without Christ. Paul is not calling the Colossians to ask themselves whether this has happened, but reminding them that it has. If then you have been raised with Christ, or as it is better translated, since then you have been raised with Christ. He commands us here, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's the first imperative in our text today. Seek the things above. This imperative, seek, it means look, desire. It's a plural command. This is something that we all do corporately together. There's not a way to seek the Lord apart from the body. If you're not a part of the body, if you're not participating with the body, you are not seeking the things above. Something you have to do together. We do it as individuals, but we do it as an assembly of individuals. It's in the active voice, something that we expend effort to do. This is something we are truly doing, not something that's happening to us. It's something that we expend effort while we are doing. This is not something we do once. It's in the present tense. Um, Not something we do once, but rather it's an ongoing process with no end in sight. It's something that we are to keep doing. A better translation might be keep seeking the things above 
where Christ is. Something that we are to always be doing. And the things that are above, it's not a noun here. The things above is not the subject of the sentence. It's an adverb of location. That's the direction that we seek. That's the direction that we look. Or we keep looking. And the phrase could literally be look up. Keep looking upward. Keep looking up. And the first noun in the sentence is Christos. Christ. We are to always be seeking where Christ is. Always looking up to Christ. That's the first mark of a new Christian life. It's the upward look. The upward orientation. To always be seeking Christ. Not just on Sundays or or Wednesdays. Not just in our quiet time or in our Bible study at home. We are looking up to Christ. Not just in front of other Christians. But always. When you wake up, when you're in the car, when you're in the office, when you're at home, when you're away from home, when you're in public, when you're in private, with family, with friends, with co-workers, always looking up to Christ. What Paul is describing is not observation. We're not just watching Christ. It's orientation. We're not watching Christ. We're revolving around Him. Everything that we do in this life, everything that we have centers around Christ. He is the landmark by which we locate and define everything else in life. And it's, it's very common, I think, for, for some more well-known Christians, famous Christians today, who are well-known artists or athletes, thinkers, philosophers, to whom people refer to as, as Christian artists or Christian philosophers, Christian athletes. They'll say something like this, I'm not a Christian rapper. I'm a rapper who happens to be Christian, right? I'm not a Christian athlete, a Christian basketball player. I'm an athlete who happens to be a Christian. And I assume they say something like this because they want their work or their performances to be taken seriously by the world around them. As if if the, the description Christian somehow lessens their ability or their talent. But it's a terrible way to define yourself when Paul here is saying the opposite. You are not anything before you are in Christ. If you're a rapper or an athlete or an intellectual or a plumber, if any of those are truly Christian, you are a Christian who happens to be a rapper. You are a Christian who happens to be an intellectual. You're a Christian who happens to be a plumber. We might think in much the same way about our own identities. If someone asks you to tell them about yourself, what are the descriptives that you use? You might say that you're a teacher, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a student, you're a musician. You're an athlete. You're a camper, a hiker. I mean, the ways that you could describe yourself are endless according to your own interests, right? But Paul says, no, before you think in any of those ways, you are to consider yourself in Christ. You are in Christ. Who are you? You say, I am in Christ. That's your identity. That's the biggest descriptor. That tells you almost everything you need to know about yourself. Everything you need to know about yourself. You are in Christ. So what Paul is describing is your new orientation. It defines everything about you. Not your occupation. Not your hobbies or your interests. Not your family. Not your personality. There's no, I am Enneagram number six or whatever. I don't know what the heck that means, but that's an identity claim, isn't it? You define yourself by that number. You are locating the ways that you should act. The ways that you should think. The way that you should orient your life and treat other people around that. Right. That's an authority claim. And Paul here is saying there is no identity outside of Christ for the Christian. The most significant thing about you is that you are in Christ. 
So much so that Paul counted everything else about himself, his ancestry, his family, his economic status, his religious achievements, his good works as loss, a write-off. They don't exist anymore compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. More than that, he counts whatever gain or achievement he has in this life as rubbish, as garbage, refuse, as he says, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. It's Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. If you have been raised as a Christian since you have been raised with Christ, everything you consider about yourself and desire outside of yourself is to be oriented around the Christ who is seated at God's right hand. That's where our desires are for. That's what our eyes are fixed on. That's where we are to be constantly orienting our lives toward because that's where our treasure lies. It's where we are as Christians. We are there with Him right now, Ephesians tells us, spiritually seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's where our hearts and our minds are. Because you are in Christ, you are a resident of another world. You are the subject of a kingdom that is not of this world. And the kingdom of Christ does not recognize dual citizenship. You are therefore to be constantly preoccupied with the affairs and the goals and the heavenly realities of that world, of that kingdom. That kingdom where Christ is reigning right now over his people. And Paul's phrase, seated at the right hand of God, it should call our minds to the work of Christ. Christ's seat in the heavenly places at the right hand of God is a place of exaltation, a place of celebration and authority as a result of what he has done. His humbling of himself and his sacrificial service as the son of God upon this earth and upon the cross. It's a reference to Christ as mediator and all that that entails. If you were here two or three weeks ago for equipping hour, I taught him the threefold office of Christ. That's what's at play here. That's what's entailed here. When we talk about Christ seated at the right hand of God, Christ as mediator, our prophet, our high priest, our king, where Jesus is constantly and ceaselessly and perfectly revealing his truth to us as our prophet, interceding for us before the Father as our great high priest on the basis of the new covenant inaugurated in his blood. And where he is reigning, not only generally and universally over all creation, but specially in the hearts of his particular people. All that you are and and everything that you have, all of your growth and sanctification in Christ as a Christian is secured for you and supplied to you by Christ's mediation at the right hand of God. Just as Christ is ceaseless in his intercession for us at God's right hand, so our attention and our devotion as those raised with Christ should be ceaselessly on him. Where he is at God's right hand. And those in Christ are not Sunday or Wednesday Christians. There really is no such thing as a Sunday Christian. Right? If you're not a Christian on Friday, you're not a Christian. Not a Christian on Saturday, you're not a Christian. Real biblical Christianity cannot be casual. It cannot be casual. If you can say that you are in Christ, then you must and you will live your life with this Stephen-like vision of the heavens opened and Christ at the right hand of God. That's what Paul is encouraging. That's what Paul is commanding us here. And that, that reality, that vision will be more real and more attractive to you than where you work or what you have, what you eat, what you wear, what you know, who you know. When you are in Christ and you orient yourself always toward the right hand of God, you are always looking upward in his direction. And as you behold him, you are transformed by him. 
So this is something that we are to be doing, to be constantly doing. How do we do that? How do we accomplish this? How do we orient ourselves around Christ? Remember, this is an active verb. This is not something that just God just zaps us with. And suddenly we have this perfect vision of Christ. How do we accomplish this? Paul explains that to us with a second imperative in verse two. He says, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Paul is telling us that to have a new orientation, we have to have a new mentality, a new mindset, a heavenly mindset. Paul's imperative here, set your minds. It's likewise a present, active, plural imperative, something that we do together, something that we are always to be doing, something that we expend effort to do. Set your minds for neo in the Greek. It means to be thinking on, concentrating on, dwelling on, to be seeking or looking upward. We have to be thinking upward. As J.B. Lightfoot paraphrases it, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. To do that, we must have heavenly subjects to think on. The the things that are derived from Scripture, that's the purpose of Paul's command later in chapter 3 and verse 16. When he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Think on Christ is what it says here. Think upward. Think on his person and his work, his commands, his promises to let the word of Christ dwell in us is to let it live in us always to saturate us and to let the natural response to these heavenly realities naturally express itself in our lives. That's how we keep seeking God in every step and situation of our lives. We are continually giving praise to our Lord in all things and through all things because of the truth that dwells in us from the word. Paul has already given us two truths on which to dwell so far in chapter three in our resurrection with Christ and his place at the right hand of God. Those heavenly realities, they create heavenly thoughts. Those heavenly thoughts are expressed in holy living. Before Paul gets to these ethical imperatives in this chapter, how to live holy lives, he's commanding us to dwell on why we live holy lives. That's how the gospel is worked out in the life of the Christian. It doesn't impose rules on you externally. It gives you motives for holiness. Any real good done in the body is a result of what Christ has done as the subject of the mind and the heart. And this new mentality that Paul is describing is the sole way that a Christian should think, the only way. That a Christian should think. Because there's a contrast here. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. There's one verb here. Set your mind, right? It's in the present tense, something we are to always be doing. It's in the active tense, something we are to be expending effort to do. And then this clause, not the things above. It's also in the present tense then. It's also in the active voice. So as much as we are to always be setting our minds on the things above, we are to never be setting our minds on the things below. In fact, we are to be working, disciplining our minds so that we never think of the things below. We need a a heavenly myopia, a spiritual tunnel vision to where we don't see the things below. We only see the things above. And I've brought up this old saying before while preaching through Colossians 1. But one of the worst sayings I ever heard growing up was, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. I grind my teeth every time I hear someone say it. It's one of those good old-fashioned southern proverbs, right? Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I've explained the the issue with that before. It assumes that being heavenly-minded can be a problem for sinful people. 
And that even if we could do it, that it would be a problem. It's like saying, don't be too focused on Christ. Don't take Christianity too seriously as if being that way could keep you from doing this world good. And worse yet, there is built into that understanding the assumption that earthly things are both more substantial, more real than heavenly realities, and they're more urgent. They're more important than heavenly realities. We can think on Christ. We can proclaim Christ. We can pray to Christ. But there has to be a point where we just do something, right? It's another way you hear it phrased. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But in fact, to hear Paul say it, there is never a time when earthly thoughts and earthly things take precedent over the things of the next world. There's never a time when earthly thoughts and earthly things take precedent over the things of the other world. That that statement would be very problematic to a lot of people today. Right? Even in Christianity, that's not the philosophy of a lot of people when they talk about evangelism. You have to meet their, their physical needs first before you can meet their spiritual needs. You have to earn the right through earthly things to talk to them about heavenly things. It's not when people talk about race in the church. You have to reconcile people racially or ethnically before they can be reconciled to God. It's not the way we live in our lives today. It's not the way we, we tend to live our earthly lives today. We fit God and the things of his kingdom in the cracks of our earthly lives. Assuming that what we eat or what we wear, what we do for work, where we live, what we plan for the future, all of those things are more pressing or urgent or important in the short term. Right, God, I've got to get these things done first, but after that, the rest of my day is yours. Right, I've got to think on these things first, but after I'm done, then I'll dwell on Scripture. Right, before I go to bed, I'll fit in a little bit of prayer, and then I'll, I'll wait until the next day when I get up and spend the rest of my time on the important things, the pressing things, the things that matter in this life. According to Paul, the Christian mentality, the heavenly mindset is fundamentally opposed to that kind of thinking and living. Jesus said we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those other things, not inherently wrong, not inherently evil or bad, not, not inherently to be rejected. They will be added to us as we need them from our heavenly father. We do not seek them. We do not try to obtain them what we eat and drink and what we wear, where we work, what we want to accomplish on the earth in terms of benefiting society or leaving a legacy for our children. Those things are not inherently evil, but they make terrible gods. They make terrible first priorities. An upward gaze and a heavenly mind that is set on Christ does not mean that you ignore all of your earthly responsibilities. Paul is about to give a lot of instruction about earthly responsibilities, earthly relationships. It means that you will see those responsibilities in light of heavenly realities. Your work is from God and through God and to God. Your marriage is not about you. It's from Christ and through Christ and to Christ. And when you have vocational problems or marital problems or relational problems, the solution is not to prioritize those problems. It's to prioritize Christ and his word. I mean, how many problems or conflicts in a marriage comes about because one or both people forget that that marriage is not about them, that their union is about Christ and not about themselves? What causes quarrels and fights among you, James asks? Is it not your passions, your earthly desires that dwell within you? Not not heavenly ones, not Christ likeness, not humility. Your children are from Christ and through Christ and to Christ. They're not your priority. They're not your first priority. That, that's, that really goes against the grain when you first have a baby, right? Your children are not your first priority. 
In fact, they never should be. They're not yours even. They're, they're not your legacy. They are God's gift to you, a stewardship entrusted to you for a time. And they are through Christ and, and to Christ from which to glorify Christ. Your hobbies or your health, your sickness and your blessings, your sufferings, all of those things, your life is from Christ and through Christ and, and to Christ. To him be the glory forever, Paul says. Amen. The upward gaze and the, the heavenly mind They transform earthly responsibilities into heavenly duties of worship to the king. And instead of distracting you from Christ, they are the means by which you love him. The means by which you proclaim him. They are never the ends themselves. The end is always Christ. Heavenly mindedness does not keep your head in the clouds so as to render you fruitless. It gets your head out of the dirt so you can see what truly matters. It grounds your feet in eternal truths that make you abound in the fruit of the Spirit. And I like John Owen's argument in his book, Spiritual Mindedness. I'll probably quote him a few times today. But he says, Heavenly thoughts will surely not be any more obstacle to getting earthly tasks done than carnal thoughts. This, this heavenly mindset, it becomes the filter by which you view everything and everyone in life. It gives eternal significance and eternal perspective to every day and every interaction, every action, every reaction. Our preoccupation with the kingdom of heaven and the king of heaven is meant to govern all of our earthly responses. That's how we constantly dwell in the things above, by looking past the things of the earth to the throne of our heavenly king. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, all that you truly have is Christ? You belong to heaven. You don't have a home here. You have a house here, maybe, but you don't have a home. Your home is not in this world. Your home is in heaven. You belong to heaven. Your, sp- your spouse does not ultimately belong to you. He or she is Christ's. So are your children and your job, your possessions. They are lent to you from God as means by which you can most magnify Christ in this world. They are talents entrusted to servants. In Jesus' parable, and he will return and require an accounting of how you stewarded those things for the master. And it's not enough to occasionally think of Christ or, or of spiritual things while you carry out your activities on earth. Right? Even the most heathen person in the world occasionally thinks of spiritual things. Even the most wicked person in the world occasionally thinks about eternity. John Owen talks about the fact that, nat- that the natural direction for water to flow is downhill. But if you squeeze a container from the outside, you apply external pressure, it will for a time flow upward as if it was natural for it to do so. That's how worldly people think about spiritual things. That's how those who don't have the mind of Christ think about spiritual things. The natural bent, the natural flow of their thoughts is toward the earth until a time that there's external pressure. And then briefly, temporarily, their thoughts return upward to Christ. But a Christian mind is like a bubbling spring which is constantly flowing upward to heaven. And even if it is occasionally obstructed and its thoughts return to the earth, the natural bent and flow of Christian thought is upward to Christ. That's the heavenly mind. What are, what are your thoughts like this morning? What is natural for you to think about when there is no external demand on your time, on your attention? What your thoughts gravitate toward in the moments that there is no pressure? That there's no external demand. That is who you truly are. Right? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23.7 tells us. Are you preoccupied with earthly things or is your mind informed with the word of Christ set constantly on things above? 
And Paul is calling his readers here, those who may have forgotten to set aside transient causes, temporary concerns, and to think upon what is natural for them as believers to think, to dwell upon what really matters. If you want to do any earthly good, if you have to have this mind that is set on another world, another kingdom. When you think of men like William Wilberforce, George Mueller, men who did an incredible amount of good for the world. And you read their writings, right? Their thoughts and their words hardly ever touch the earth. They hardly ever touch the earth. So focused were they on their Savior and their King. If you pricked them, they would bleed Bible, as Spurgeon would say. They never grew tired of the gospel. They could not get over what had happened to them. They never lost sight of what was going to happen to them. That, that brings us to Paul's last point in his introduction. You have the upward look, you have the heavenly mind, and now you have a hidden life. We have a new identity, a new orientation, a new mindset, and we have a new glorious destiny. Paul is drawing the Colossians to dwell upon their eternal hope in the living Christ. He says here in verses 3 through 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He reminds them of a simple fact that makes their abandonment of the way that the world thinks the only reasonable and natural thing to do as a Christian. He tells them, for you have died. You have died. Unlike the other verbs he has used in this passage, this is not an ongoing process. This is not a goal to be obtained, like seeking Christ or setting our minds on Christ Paul's not describing the ongoing process of mortifying or killing our sin, though we'll get to that later in the chapter. Paul uses the aorist tense here, past tense, for our death. We have completely, finally, irrevocably, definitively died. Died to what? In what way? We died in the death of Christ. We have died to the world. We have died to sin. His crucifixion which has become ours by faith, and in it we have died, really died, not just to the penalty for our sin, the penalty of God's law, but we have died to our sin. Paul pleads in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, same word as in Colossians 3, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Continues in verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Our union with Christ here, Paul says, in his death brings the body of sin to nothing. It does not destroy our earthly body or change it in some way, but it breaks the mastery of our body. We are no longer enslaved to it. It has made our slave, or more truly, it has made Christ's slave. There's no moment where the Christian must sin. A Christian sins by choice, not by necessity. We are not dominated by the cravings that drive and determine the rest of the world's choices and activities and lifestyles. We are truly free as Christians to walk in the newness of life. For that reason, later in Colossians 3, Paul tells the Colossians to put to death what is earthly in you. For that reason that Paul tells the Romans to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Think on that. Think on your death. Think on your life. 
Union with Christ makes the Christian life possible for us. We must have our death and life in Christ fixed firmly in our minds and in our sight before we undertake the putting off of sin, as Paul addresses later in Colossians 3. Like John Piper puts it, the only, the only sin that you can put off is forgiven sin. That's what we must consider in ourselves. And as Paul says about himself in Galatians 6, it's not just that our death puts to death sin in the life, but our death to Christ makes the Christian life natural for us. Not just possible, but natural. In as much as we have died to sin, we have died to the world that is saturated with sin. As Paul says about himself in Galatians 6, by the death of Christ, the world that is the goals of the world, the concerns of the world, the values of the world, the mindset of the world, the love for the world and what the world offers has been crucified to me and I to the world. Christians are dead to the power of their sins so they may walk in righteousness and they're dead to the attractions and affairs of this world so that they may live for another world. There is a remarkable amount of clarity that is given to someone when they're told that they only have a short time to live. Right? What, what happens when a person finds out that he or she is dying? Right? They set aside trivial matters. They, they put aside the unimportant things and they get to that which is truly urgent. They don't have time to waste on trivia. How much more true is that of those who are in Christ? Who, not only, who are not waiting to die, they have already died spiritually to the things of this world, to its concerns and desires. The time has passed for them to, wait, waste on worthless, to waste on worthless things, to build sandcastles in front of a rising tide, to re- rearrange furniture on a sinking ship, as it's been put. The kingdom is here. You have died and the kingdom is here. It is in your midst, Jesus tells the disciples and the Pharisees. What ought we to concern ourselves with as Christians? Paul gives us that answer in Colossians 3. He does not mention our collective death in Christ in a vacuum. It's in a contrast with our new life. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's the statement that I was dreading today. How can I unpack that? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What an amazing statement that is. That's the reasoning behind everything he's commanded the reader to do in this introduction. What does that do? What does that mean that we are hidden with Christ in God? I think it means that in a few senses. Firstly, our lives are hidden with Christ in the sense that they are concealed from the world. They are a mystery to those who are not in Christ. We are crucified to the world in Christ. And the message of that cross on which we have died is a message of foolishness to those who are perishing. We who are in Christ have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, but the natural person does not understand the spiritual realities that we traffic in. That's played out and expressed in the way that we live in the world. An orientation completely around Christ, a mind that is solely set on Christ's kingdom, will set you apart in everything that you do. It will set you apart from the world in everything that you you do. You won't behave in the same way that the world does. You won't treat your family like the world does. You won't work like the world does. What is incomprehensible to the world is that we don't live for ourselves. For our comfort or our fleshly desires, for our glory. We live for another because our lives are hidden in another. We live in Christ and so we live to proclaim Him and enjoy Him and be conformed to Him in all of our earthly doings. The world directs all of their earthly activities Unbelievers direct all of their earthly activities by what they think they deserve. 
Am I being paid what I'm worth at work? Am I receiving the respect I deserve at home? Do I have the car or the bank account, the vacations, the experiences that I deserve? You're worth it. That's a common message in commercials today. You are worth it. A Christian determines his life not by what he considers himself worth, but what he considers Christ worth. What is Christ worth? The way that you live, the way that you think, shows, shows what you think. Shows your answer there. What is Christ worth? What is Christ worth to you? Am I working so as to honor my heavenly master? Am I serving my family, the other saints, in a way that Christ deserves? Am I living personally in a way that is worthy of Christ's gospel? Am I running so as to obtain the prize of the upward call of God in Christ? In the world's way, you're never content. You never have enough. In the Christian way, you are content should you lose everything else of temporal value in this life because you have gained Christ. Having a a singular focus on Christ profoundly transforms the way that we gain in this life. The way that we lose in this life. Your worldly gains are not so great as to draw your affections away from your true treasure hidden at the Father's side. They are shadows growing strangely dim, as the old hymn says, as we turn our eyes upon Christ. Your losses in this world as a Christian are not so devastating as to shake your confidence or your conviction that you truly have everything in Jesus alone. Whatever gain you have in this life is no gain at all compared to what God has given you in Christ. Whatever loss you experience in this life is no loss at all compared to your inheritance in Christ. That's the way that a Christian thinks. That's the way that the Christian lives. I'm going to butcher it, but the quote from Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain in order to gain what he cannot lose. Something like that about serving Christ. You can look it up later and it'll probably be way more impactful than the way I just paraphrased it. That's the way that a Christian lives. That's the way that a Christian thinks. Our lives are hidden from the unbelieving world around us. The life and orientation and focus of the Christian makes no sense to someone who is outside of Christ. It's incomprehensible to our self-driven and self-obsessed culture that our focus would be on Christ. And our lives would be oriented solely around how we may magnify and please Him. It made no sense to the worldly false teachers in Colossae that the Colossian saints had already attained all the spiritual transcendence in life that is possible for a person to possess. Our identity in Christ and with Christ, determined outside of ourselves, is fundamentally opposed to the self-identity, the self-realization fever that is sweeping the unbelieving world. Being in Christ defines everything about you, and more and more it will set you apart like a lamp shining on on a hill. In your worldview, in your words, in your deeds, from every other system of thought, every other way of living. But despite that, secondly, we are, we are hidden with Christ and God in the sense that we have common spiritual life with the Father and the Son. We are perfectly preserved now and for all time, perfectly secure in Christ. Our Christian fellowship, First John describes it as fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are seated with Christ at God's right hand. We are to seek and think on heavenly realities because we live right now in heavenly realities. Kept in God, by God, with Christ, for Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, or the presence of Christ, the hope of Christ, the reward of Christ. We are not as those in Christ betting our eternity on an unsure outcome, but rather we are already made partakers of an unseen reality. We have our inheritance. 
We have nothing to lose in Christ because we can't lose Christ. We cannot be lost by Christ. At the right hand of God, as Paul reminds us, is a prophet who speaks truth when he says that we will never be cast out. A great high priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who always lives to make intercession for them. A reigning king who has established his kingdom in righteousness and will reign over us forever. God is our refuge in Christ. Our hiding place. And that means that all that God is, is employed to keep us there. Who can snatch the saints out of his hand? Lastly, Paul tells us that we are hidden in the sense that what is currently an unseen certainty and an invisible reality will be made visible. In verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, not if. This condition is not whether Christ appears, but that our appearing is conditioned on Christ's appearing. Christ who is alive, not with us or alive like us, but is our life. He is our resurrection, our ascension, our life, and he is our appearing. Just as he was raised, just as he ascended, just as he lives, so he certainly will appear. This is a snapshot of a future event. Paul speaks of the second coming here. That's the reality that's at the center of all Paul's teaching on the Christian life in Colossians 3. The motive for all of our practical holiness is the certain and imminent return of our Lord. I don't know if it's from fear of, of stirring up controversy or from a lack of interest, but I don't, th- I don't believe generally that we as Christians think, talk, or speak, or teach about the return of Christ enough. The return of our, our risen, reigning, triumphant Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was one of the, the great and most pressing motivations for Paul. And all of the apostles and the early church for living in active obedience to the Lord, for evangelism, for discipleship. And it's not because they had their timeline wrong. It's not because they misunderstood the words of Jesus. They had a faulty understanding of the end times. It is not wrong for Christians in every age to see the return of Christ as close at hand. That's not escapism. That's knowing that a thousand years is as, a, is as a day in God's timing and a day like a thousand years. That's knowing that Jesus' teachings had much to do with His return. And His teachings of the kingdom reflected that there is a time coming where no one may work. So we must work now, Paul says. That's knowing that Jesus' last written words to the church promised, Surely I am coming soon. There's a reason those words are at the back of our Bible. They're meant to ring in our ears. They're meant to float before our eyes, to be foremost in our minds as we walk out the Christian life. Surely I am coming soon. Jesus is coming soon to judge the living and the dead. So we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling, seeing as as Justin said a couple weeks ago, God did not spare His own Son on the cross for the sake of His wrath upon sin. We should have in our minds the seriousness with which God views sin. The holy judgment that is coming upon sin. We should then readily be putting off our own sin, turning from it, fighting against it. That's what Paul says in verses 5-6 through of Colossians 3. Therefore put to death what is earthly earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why does he say that? For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We live in reverent awe of the God and the Savior who is also judge. 
We live in a sense of urgency for other people who will fall under that judgment unless they repent and believe in the gospel. There are people, your neighbors, perishing. Souls at stake, a harvest that is white, ready to be brought into the fold through the reconciliation of Christ and the gospel. Do you care about souls? Do you think about souls in your earthly life? The world doesn't. The world doesn't think about their souls, but you are called to think about their souls. Though they may not. Do you want them to be saved? Do you know that they must trust Christ or they will perish in hell for eternity? Do you know that this short life will one day be passed and you will never be able to worship God in that way again? Evangelism is a one-time thing for us as Christians. Do you feel the urgency of His coming? You are charged with proclaiming that reality. A Christian who is setting his mind on Christ on the things above will view the return of Christ with urgency as well as hope. And he will seek the reconciliation of souls through the gospel rather than the Christianization of a culture. There are worthy battles that need to be fought by Christians in this life. But if all of your efforts are spent fighting a culture war for an earthly kingdom, you are neglecting your calling to another kingdom. What is more from a personal perspective, one of the best insights I heard from a fellow seminary student in a discussion on eschatology. Regardless of your eschatology, you're going to see Jesus in about three decades or so. Your personal end time does not stretch out very far. Should the Lord tarry long, the end of your time is at most decades away. Your life is like a vapor. You are on the edge of eternity at all times. At all times. You are closer now than when I began this sermon. And you're probably much closer now than when I began this sermon. And it's almost as if we are reluctant to talk about the return of Jesus. As if we're going to be seen as extremist or alarmist or escapist. But the return of Jesus, the soon return of Jesus, does not make everything meaningless in life. It makes everything meaningful in life. Paul wasn't driven in the New Testament by the ambition to construct a thousand year legacy. In earthly Christian empire, he was driven by the knowledge that the kingdom of God, the spiritual unseen reality of Christ's special reign would soon be revealed. And with it, the perfect church manifested with Christ in glory. Paul's charge here is to wait longingly, but work eagerly for that glorious appearing. To live and work and and serve in light of that coming reality. To not abandon that patient, urgent faith and to seek to build an earthly copy of the kingdom. The kingdom is in your midst. There's no dichotomy between a literal kingdom of Christ and a spiritual kingdom of Christ. The spiritual kingdom of Christ's people is a literal kingdom. It is here. It is now. It is advancing. It is growing. It is more real, more substantial than the present earthly realities in which we live. Paul is urging us to set our sights and our hopes not on an earthly, physical, temporary kingdom of Christian influence, but a heavenly, spiritual, eternal kingdom of Christ's glory. Glory that is the full brightness of Christ's light. Glory that has an eternal weight compared to the passing pleasures and pains of this life. Glory that is not worth comparing to our present suffering. Glory that is worth exchanging everything of this earth to obtain. This is a singular glory here. It's not a plural glory. It's not our glorification, though we will be glorified with him. This glory is Christ's. Do you long to see him this morning? That was the greatest reality of which Paul wrote. 
Christ's appearing. Not even our appearing, Christ's appearing. That we will one day see Him as He is. That when He is revealed, we will be revealed with Him. That we will behold Him as He is. We will behold Him in His glory. I pray that none of us would be so content with our current state, our current earthly existence, so as not to think and long for and look for the day when our union with Him would be fully revealed. And we shall be with Him bodily. Randy referenced this text um, at the conference this weekend. If you went to the conference, I'm sorry, you heard much better preaching there. At least you got your fix in for this weekend. But turn with me to Philippians 3. Verse 19. This is Paul's drive here for every imperative that he's about to give in Philippians 4. Philippians 3, verse 19, he says, Their end, those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Every imperative he comes comes from that reality of the second coming here. He says, stand firm in verse one. He says, agree in the Lord, be unified in verse two. He says, rejoice in the Lord in verse four. He says, think on the Lord, dwell on the Lord in verses eight through ten. I wonder if we cannot get so wrapped up in building an earthly home for ourselves or even creating a makeshift Christian empire out of the mud here below that we do not feel the pangs of distance from our King and our Savior, a bodily distance from our Lord, our elder brother, the one who loved us first and loves us best. There's not one thing you have or one thing you will ever experience in this world that will, that will compare to seeing Jesus face to face. What are you oriented toward? What are you longing for? What are you thinking on? How we should long for that day and cry out for that day. We are exiles here. We await our return from exile like the Israelites in Babylon. And just as as Daniel and the faithful exiles set their face toward Jerusalem in prayer while they were away from Jerusalem, so we set our eyes on Christ. So we orient ourselves toward Christ. We long for Christ. We live for Christ until we see Christ. That's what Paul is teaching the Colossians about the Christian life. They no longer live, but Christ lives in them. They do not live for their own sake, but their life is hidden with Christ in God for the glory of Christ. The whole goal in Paul's commands to put off the old self is that the old man is not like Christ. The command to put on the new self is a command to be more like Christ. Paul's teachings on Christian relationships are so that in the context of the church and the family and the workplace, the glory of Christ and the gospel's transformative work would be displayed. In all those dimensions of life, Christians are called to be watchful in prayer, it says in Colossians 4, wise and gracious in speech so that a door is open for the word, that the gospel would go forth into all of life and every life of God's elect. That's the natural disposition of a person who lives in Christ, to seek The things that are above where Christ is to think in all things of the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This morning, the application is is very simple. What are you seeking? What is the orientation of your life, the bent of your thoughts, the desires of your heart? If you are in Christ this morning, 
You have been raised with Jesus, seated with him, and he is your life. There is nothing you have or desire in this life that is worth pursuing for its own sake. Its worth is only found in how you may magnify Christ in it. If you are in Christ, your mind should be a perpetual fountain of Christward thoughts. Heavenly thoughts. And if that is not the case, you need to fill your mind again with the truths of the word of Christ. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly until your thoughts return to him. As John Owen observes, our thoughts of Christ are the best pledges of our heartfelt love for him. They are so wonderfully acceptable to him. When a Christian soul, when a soul is discouraged and depressed, it withdraws itself and hides from Christ. But Christ calls his poor, discouraged disciple to himself. That's Christ's call to you this morning. Everything in this world has no greater aim, Owen continues, than to possess the truth, than to possess the hearts and minds of men. Even the most wholesome things of this temporary world are still cursed and tainted by sin. They're cursed with selfishness and idolatry and our flesh and our enemy will use those wholesome things to draw our minds and our hearts away from Christ. We must always seek to call our minds and our hearts, our whole being back to an upward focus, an eternal focus upon the source of our life. Our minds will either be ruled by the spirit of God and therefore spiritual, or they will be dominated by the world and therefore earthly. There's no mixture of the two. There's no common ground. We must use all the means that God has given to us as regenerate people, as those who are in Christ to stir up heavenly thoughts in our minds. We have to be diligent always to fill our souls with the light and the knowledge of heavenly things from Christ's word, to resist our flesh, to choose, choose a specific subject about Christ on which to dwell. Meditate on his glory this morning, his his glory is both man and God. Think on his work, his meditation on your behalf. Think on his intercession for you. His role is your high priest. His reign is your king. Think on what he has done. Remind yourself of what he is doing from the father's right hand. Remember the promise of his return, that he is coming soon. To seek Christ and to set your mind on Christ is something you need to make time to do. Specifically, even as you try to foster this way of thinking in everything that you do. Give Christ the first fruits of your day, the best of your attention. Don't save the leftovers for him and offer a half-hearted sacrifice after you've given your best, your true worship to your workplace, to your family, to your earthly relationships. Don't meditate out of a sense of duty or rote. Do it out of joy. You've been given access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ where a lost world perishes for lack of that knowledge. This, this is a privilege for us. This is something we get to do. This is something that no one else can do. Cry out to God this morning to give you a desire for the things above, to give you a mind that is set on things above. This is not an optional activity for Christians. It's a sign of Christ's life in a person. You find your heart growing in love for this world and the things of this world, the respect of this world. The affections and the, the approval of this world, success in the world, dominion over the world. If you find yourself seeking to gain as much of this world's things that you can, turn aside for a while this morning and dwell on Christ and Him crucified. Meditate by faith on His life and His death. Meditate on your life, your death in Christ. Be renewed in knowledge after the image of your Creator. 
You cannot think highly of the things of this world, as John Owen says. Its power and its riches and its honor and its reputation when you see them in the light of the cross of Christ. May your heart be drawn away this morning from worthless things back to the true treasure hidden in God as you think about the glory of Jesus Christ. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you first and foremost for Christ. Our death and our life, our security, our hope and our future, our glory, our Savior, our King, our High Priest, our Prophet, God, our truth, our standard, everything that you are for us in Christ. Lord, I hope that we would be satisfied this morning in Christ, that we would dwell not on the things of the earth, God, as pressing and as bothersome as they may appear to us this morning, but Lord, that we would take time and dwell on Christ, that our minds would be transformed and renewed, Lord. We would not be caught up in the the concerns of this world, choked out like the seed in the parable of the sower, Lord, choked out by the cares and concerns of this world and kept from fruitfulness, Lord, kept from Christ. I pray that we would cast off all worldly concerns and dwell on him this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.